The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. It's Thursday, February 9th, 2023. I'm Jackson Bird. Today, an extra long episode for you featuring the history of the M&M's spokes candies and why we care about them so much. Plus, code breakers have just decrypted over 50 lost letters from Mary, Queen of Scots. And another Valentine's Day campaign to help you enact revenge on your ex, this time with a surprise scorpion. Here's some cool stuff for your ride home. According to a recent morning consult survey, Gen Z adults' top five favorite brands in order are YouTube, Google, Netflix, Amazon, and M&M's. That's right, M&M's cracked the top five as the only food brand. The next food brands on the list aren't until number eight when you get Doritos, followed by Kit Kat, Oreo, and Gatorade. But M&M's is up there in the top five with Netflix and Google. That's pretty impressive, especially for a brand that frequently causes such a stir with changes to their anthropomorphic mascots. And ahead of the Super Bowl this weekend, M&M's is taking full advantage of the battles they've spurred in the culture wars over the past couple of years. So I wanted to take some time to dive into the history of the M&M's mascots and why some people have such strong feelings about them. So M&M's entered production in 1941, a ripoff of an existing British candy and an ultimately soured collaboration between the sons of two of the biggest candy makers of the 20th century, Mars and Hershey. Forrest Mars Sr., son of Frank Mars, who founded the Mars Company, so the story goes, saw British soldiers eating Smarties. Not like the chalky U.S. candy tablets, but their own candy-covered chocolates that look very similar to M&M's. Forrest Mars saw soldiers eating Smarties during the Spanish Civil War, and he thought the way that those candies could stay preserved in warm weather without melting was ingenious, so he quickly came up with his own version that he acquired a U.S. patent for. But he needed more chocolate to pull them off. Chocolate that Hershey's had, because for whatever reason, that company wasn't currently subject to rationing. So Forrest Mars teamed up with Bruce Murray, the son of William Murray, who was then president of Hershey's. Both of them had bad working and personal relationships with their fathers, so the idea of coming up with something innovative together seemed to appeal to them. So Murray and Mars, that's how we get M&Ms. Their good working relationship wouldn't last, however. After several years of increasing conflict between the two of them, Murray took a million-dollar buyout just to get away from Mars. 
Despite the contentious beginning, M&Ms have frequently been one of the best-selling candies in the U.S. and a huge seller around the world. They were even the first candy to go to space on board the Columbia Space Shuttle in 1981. Apart from having a solid product that has managed a good balance of sticking to what it does best and experimenting with new flavors and colors over the years, I would argue that one of the reasons M&M's has had such lasting success is down to the success of their mascots, or spokes candies. The Plain and Peanut M&M's mascots were first introduced in 1954 as part of the larger marketing campaign to introduce Peanut as a new second option for the candies. The commercials were in black and white, so it wasn't obvious if they were red and yellow colored yet, respectively, as the main two mascots are now, and they didn't yet have the personalities that we would come to know from red and yellow today. In a handful of commercials that I dug up on YouTube, the candies seem to change voices and personalities with each one. In the first, the two candies have high-pitched voices, but no really discernible genders. They might have been trying to make them sort of androgynous elves or imps. In the second, the plain candy has taken on more of a feminine lilt to her voice and movements, while the peanut one now has a deep southern drawl. And in yet another commercial, they both have deep voices, but the peanut one stays southern, because they were really leaning into the peanut M&Ms being made with southern peanuts roasted to a golden tan. Over the years, those two mascots continued to find their footing, and eventually their colors, sticking around in the brand's advertising for decades, all the way up to the early 90s when they got a CGI makeover. But that makeover wouldn't just come in the form of CGI. Adweek recently spoke to Susan Credle and Steve Rudder, two former creative partners at the advertising agency BBDO, who were responsible for creating the additional M&M's characters who were added to the lineup in the mid-90s. Rudder says that when they were hired, those two candy mascots were, quote, meh incarnate, end quote. Credle and Rudder wanted to give them more personality distinct personalities, a unique one for each color in the bag. They looked to popular TV shows of the day, Cheers, Seinfeld, Friends, to come up with those archetypal personality traits that makes any good comedy scene flow. Quoting Adweek, Mars agreed the spokes candies could be less than perfect creatures, rather than shameless corporate shills. They would be short, possess no magical powers, and wear gloves at all times. They would deal with the same limitations we all deal with. End quote. Red became the kind of angry, manipulative, occasionally misogynistic leading man. Yellow was his chill, oblivious sidekick. A classic odd couple. So long as you adhered to their personality traits, any commercial would pretty much write itself. Due to budget constraints, the rest of the cast of characters weren't introduced all at once, but rolled out one by one over time. Blue was introduced as the cool M&M, always more effortlessly successful than Red and Yellow, who came up with elaborate antics to try to be as cool and physically blue-colored as he was. Notably, Blue's personality was simply cool, because he was the color that had been voted on to be added to M&Ms by the public in 1995. 
orange, the M&M that represented crispy and later pretzel versions, is neurotic as a personality trait. As the nostalgia critic on YouTube pointed out, he's basically the realistic portrayal of what would happen if M&Ms, or any mascots, like pigs who advertise barbecue restaurants, realized just how messed up their existence was and exactly what they were advertising. But interestingly, Credle revealed to Adweek that their original plan was for Orange to be a female M&M, specifically one modeled after classic fiery-haired comics like Lucille Ball and Carol Burnett. Now, I don't know why Orange had to be the crispy M&M, but because it did, for whatever reason, Credle and Rudder had to abandon their female comic plan. Because research came out that showed people loved the crispy M&Ms, even preferring them to plain and peanut. So the conceit of the character became that the character was terrified of being eaten. Credle and Rudder didn't want the first female spokescandy to be a nervous wreck. So they made Orange a neurotic guy and focused on a new green character for the first female M&M. And here is where things are about to get a little weird. But more on that after a word from our sponsors. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. So sometime in the 1970s, a rumor got started that green M&Ms were aphrodisiacs. No one really knows why this rumor got started, and everyone has different explanations for why people thought it was true. Some say it had to do with the particular dye used in the coloring, others that the color green is just symbolic of fertility. M&M's insist that it is not true, but the rumor was well known enough to be referenced in at least one M&M's commercial after the green M&M spokescandy was introduced. But whether that rumor informed the choice of the green M&M to not only be a woman character, but to be a woman who is fully in touch with her sexuality and constantly turning heads, I don't know. Credle, the woman who created the green M&M, had this to say. Quote, I wanted her to be a strong woman who is comfortable with her sexuality and empowered by it. If you go back and look at the work, she's always in control. She's always finding the other characters ridiculous. End quote. Which is true. Some over the years have claimed that the sexy green M&M is an affront to women, but just as many, if not more, have loved her for being a strong, confident, and sexy female character. In fact, when M&M's decided this time last year to do their big rebrand, which mostly amounted to green and the newer Miss Brown M&M wearing more sensible shoes, a lot of people were upset that green wasn't allowed to express herself anymore. Credle recounted her initial response to the news to Adweek, quote, Are you telling me if I wear cool, fashionable, interesting shoes, I've somehow done something bad for my sex, my gender? I thought it was a hit on her, which I didn't like, end quote. 
But even Credle admits the white knee-high go-go boots that the green M&M originally wore, which got stripped away in favor of comfy sneakers last year, weren't even the original plan. Quoting again from Adweek, When developing the character, Credle and Rudder wanted green to be in heels. Unfortunately, the CGI wasn't advanced enough. All attempts made green look like she had garden hoses for legs, said Credle. Running short on time, Credle said someone headed to a store on Fifth Avenue to buy a pair of white boots, which the graphic designers used as inspiration for Green's footwear. Problem solved. As Credle remembers thinking back then, just put her in some boots so we don't have to deal with that whole ankle-foot thing. End quote. As each of the new characters was rolled out, the newly CGI M&M's spokescandies also took on a slightly more adult personality. Gone were the anodyne cartoons delightfully twerping about their candy coating. In the 90s, the M&M's frequently found themselves in mature settings with a slew of celebrities, flirting, removing their shells, and addressing accusations of cannibalism head-on. They were also voiced by familiar celebrities like John Lovitz and John Goodman, and nowadays by J.K. Simmons as Yellow, Vanessa Williams as Miss Brown, and Amber Ruffin as Purple, the newest edition just last fall. Their visual redesign and initial overall ad campaign with the new CGI characters in the 90s was helmed by Will Venter, the animator most famous for creating the California Raisins. The new comedic take, with each M&M's individual personality really coming through in every single 30-second spot, really worked, and has continued now for almost 30 years. Characters have been added, shoes have changed, but pretty much everything else has stayed the same, because it just works. As the nostalgia critic put it, quote, We know the personalities of these timeless characters like we know Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse, characters we had almost 10 minutes at a time to get acquainted with, but with these guys, we only had 30 seconds. 30 seconds to make a connection, and we still feel like we know these characters inside and out. End quote. We feel like we know these characters. Which is perhaps why it's easy to feel so passionate when the head honchos make changes to them. There was the rebrand I mentioned at the start of 2022, in which the ampersand in the logo was more emphasized, characters were given more multi-dimensional backstories, and those shoes were swapped out to be more sensible and less sexy. Eminem's said in the initial announcement of the rebrand that it was all about, quote, reflecting the more dynamic, progressive world that we live in, end quote. And since they dropped that P word and also mentioned a vision of the future in which society is inclusive, some people like Tucker Carlson lost their minds. Carlson said at the time, quote, M&M's will not be satisfied until every last cartoon character is deeply unappealing and totally androgynous. End quote. But many feminists actually agreed, although for slightly different reasons. Kelsey Weekman said, slightly tongue-in-cheek for BuzzFeed News at the time, quote, Will the woke agenda never cease to discriminate against beautiful women like the green and brown M&Ms? Let the cartoon candy be hot, and let all the other characters be whatever they're meant to be as well. End quote. More recently, several different Fox News shows devoted multiple segments to raging against an M&M's campaign celebrating women who are flipping the status quo. 
For the campaign, M&M's introduced limited edition packages featuring the three women M&M's, green, brown, and purple, flipped upside down on the packaging so that the M's on their bellies became W's for women. This completely banal celebration of women was somehow interpreted as supporting the trans agenda by the Fox News talking heads and led to several days of renewed M&M's discourse, eventually resulting in M&M's putting out a statement saying that they are retiring the spokescandies indefinitely. The company wrote on social media in January, quote, America, let's talk. In the last year, we've made some changes to our beloved spokescandies. We weren't sure if anyone would even notice, and we definitely didn't think it would break the internet. But now we get it. Even a candy's shoes can be polarizing. Which was the last thing M&M's wanted, since we're all about bringing people together. Therefore, we have decided to take an indefinite pause from the spokescandies. In their place, we are proud to introduce a spokesperson America can agree on, the beloved Maya Rudolph. We're confident Miss Rudolph will champion the power of fun to create a world where everyone feels they belong. End quote. Despite the fervor after this announcement that the culture wars got the M&M's spokes candies canceled, a few people, including myself, checked the calendar, and realized that this was almost certainly just a stunt leading up to a probably underwhelming Super Bowl ad. Not unlike when planters killed off Mr. Peanuts. And indeed, M&M's confirmed it as such a few days later in public statements, as well as in the tone of the ensuing Maya Rudolph ads that have been running. These ads include Rudolph renaming the M&M's Manyas, like Maya, get it, and putting her face on the M&Ms instead of the classic M. She took it even further last week by announcing that the candies will now be filled with clams instead of chocolate. Candy-coated clam bites. It's so bizarre. Why clams? What does that have to do with anything? I don't know, and I really love it. The Super Bowl ad itself is set to show the former spokescandies pursuing other jobs now that they've lost their gig as shills for M&Ms. Sorry, manyas. Because Super Bowl ads now premiere and get reviewed before the game even happens, we have all the details on exactly what each character has been up to. I'm kind of a purist about Super Bowl ads, though, and try to avoid spoilers on the commercials ahead of their in-game debut. And yes, I am aware of how ridiculous that sounds, but it is also ridiculous that these commercials get released before the Super Bowl. Anyways, if you want the details on the M&M's Spokescandy's interim jobs, uh, you can read the link in the show notes or just tune in on Sunday. Here's what I'm more interested in. Putting the Spokescandies on indefinite pause and hiring Maya Rudolph as spokesperson instead was all part of a larger ad campaign for the Super Bowl, not a genuine response to all of the backlash generated by some of the decisions M&M's has made with their Spokescandies in the past year. But how engineered was that backlash? Did they intentionally do a faux-progressive thing to anger the right and make the left roll their eyes so hard they had to tweet about it? Or was the disproportionate outrage that came from the upside-down women M&Ms just lucky happenstance? 
I think they probably got inspired to run this kind of campaign after all the initial backlash around de-sexifying the green M&M back in January of 2022. I mean, how much more of a brand win can you get than both sides of the ideological aisle passionately posting about you for days on end? The Upside Down M's campaign celebrating women might have been the very first step of their overall Super Bowl campaign, a sort of soft launch to sow the seeds of discord and make their announcement pack that much more punch. But I don't think even they realized how much of a meltdown it would cause. At the end of the day, this is some pretty clever marketing, and it's a level of manipulation of current cultural divides that couldn't be as effectively pulled off if they hadn't spent decades familiarizing the public with these characters. As Credle told Adweek, quote, If M&M's is about providing fun, and if one of the things that's not fun right now is cancel culture, what a beautiful brief. Pick something that's unfun and fun it up. End quote. And hey, if their whole mission is simply to get people talking about M&Ms, it's certainly working. I mean, I just spent an entire segment discussing it. The longest segment I have ever written in the history of this show. Well played, M&Ms. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. I'm currently reading a historical fiction novel by Alison Epstein called A Tip for the Hangman. It's about Elizabethan playwright Christopher Marlowe working as a spy for the Queen, something the Shakespeare contemporary is widely believed to have actually done. In the novel, much of his spy work consists of decoding encrypted messages sent between Mary, Queen of Scots, and her allies, largely surrounding plots to overthrow or even assassinate her cousin, Queen Elizabeth I. So you can imagine my surprise when, having put aside the novel after my morning reading and turning to the day's news, I saw headlines announcing that several lost letters from Mary, Queen of Scots, had recently been found and successfully decoded by modern codebreakers. Publishing their findings yesterday in the journal Cryptologia, the team, whose expertise range from cryptography and computer science to physics and patents, say they didn't know who the author of the 57 letters was until they were able to break the cipher. Now, for some historical background, quoting Eureka Alert, One of the 16th century's most famous historical figures, Mary was first in line of succession to the English throne after her cousin Elizabeth. Catholics considered Mary to be the legitimate sovereign, and Elizabeth had her imprisoned for 19 years because she was seen as a threat. Mary was eventually executed, aged 44, for her alleged part in a plot to kill Elizabeth. During her time in captivity, Mary communicated with her associates and allies through extensive efforts to recruit messengers and to maintain secrecy. End quote. Many of these letters have been found over the years and are held in various archives, but it's also been known that a good number are missing. 
This newfound batch in particular has already provided new information, like Mary having been in contact with the French ambassador to England, Michel de Castelnau de Mauvaisier, six years earlier than previously believed. Now, that might not sound like that much of a finding, but for historians who focus on Mary, Queen of Scots, this addition of 50,000 words to their bank of evidence is huge. One expert, John Guy, said, quote, This discovery is a literary and historical sensation. This is the most important new find on Mary, Queen of Scots for a hundred years. I'd always wondered if Castelnau's originals could turn up one day, perhaps in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France, or perhaps somewhere else, unidentified because of the ciphering. And now, they have. End quote. And as one of the authors of the new paper, one of the codebreakers, explained, they just broke the code and provided summaries of the letters. Historians will be the ones who will be able to fill in all the gaps and really come up with the meanings behind all the letters. As for how they found the letters and cracked the code, the three codebreakers stumbled on them at the National Library of France's online archives for enciphered documents, Bibliothèque Nationale de France. Quoting again from Eureka Alert, The BNF catalog listed the letters as from the first half of the 16th century and related to Italian matters. However, the study authors say they quickly realized, after starting to crack the code, that they were written in French and had nothing to do with Italy. Their detective work revealed verbs and adverbs often in the feminine form, several mentions of captivity, and the name Walsingham, which arose the suspicion that they might be from Mary, Queen of Scots. End quote. Sir Francis Walsingham was Queen Elizabeth's spymaster, and therefore one of the primary antagonists to Mary. The Codebreakers are part of the Decrypt Project, which focuses on the decryption of historical manuscripts, and they explained to Vice's motherboard how computer algorithms have completely changed the game in code-breaking. Co-author George Lazary said, quote, Historically, such codes were solved manually, with a lot of trial and error, but this could take from days or weeks up to months or never. The computerized process is in a sense similar to the manual one, except that we're doing it mechanically, less relying on human intuition. And continuing from Vice, quote, While the code used in Stewart's letters was relatively complex, the authors wrote in the study that it still followed a typical pattern of the time, which included using homophones, non-word symbols used to represent letters in the alphabet, and a nomenclature, symbols representing commonly used names or words. In the paper, the authors wrote that these symbols could include geometrical shapes, Latin or Greek letters, alchemy and astronomy symbols, letter variants, and Arabic figures, end quote. Which, for the record, is very similar to how Mary Queen of Scots ciphers are represented in the novel that I am currently reading. So props to the author Alison Epstein on some impressively accurate research. But unlike in the novel, in which Christopher Marlowe pulls all-nighters for several months to crack the code, this team used an algorithm, which, quote, "...began by approximating the deciphering of Stuart's letters to solving a problem of optimization. In other words, solving how to get increasingly close to a readable solution by producing and then refining random keys." End quote. And once the algorithm cracked most of the homophones, the humans manually decoded the nomenclature. 
As Vice points out, the encrypted letters of Mary's that were decoded in her time are what ultimately led to her execution, because the letters included an alleged assassination attempt on Queen Elizabeth. Now, given that we are 400 years removed from that, these decoded letters are unlikely to hold quite the same level of bombshell, but it is still a huge boon for historians. Well, on Tuesday, I told you about the San Antonio Zoo's annual Name a Cockroach After Your Ex and We'll Feed It to One of Our Animals campaign. And now, there is another company getting in on the revenge game this Valentine's Day. Topo Chico, makers of the best seltzer, is selling candy-coated scorpions inside of heart-shaped boxes that you can send to your ex for a creepy surprise. According to Adweek, the scorpions are ethically sourced, safe to eat, and coated in Topo Chico's signature strawberry guava flavor. The scorpions will go on sale tomorrow, Friday the 10th, at 8 a.m. Eastern for $6.99 a pop. This promotion is technically being run by Topo Chico's hard seltzer arm, so you may need to be over 21 to purchase, or at least to access the website. The scorpions will be on sale through Valentine's Day while supplies last, and they come with a 50% off coupon on a 12-pack of Topo Chico hard seltzer. Brand manager Alex Ottenheimer told Adweek, quote, as a hard seltzer brand that lives to provide the unexpected, we're excited to bring folks a different way to celebrate this traditionally red roses and romance-focused holiday. Based on the success of our Valentine's Day Send Your Ex a Cactus campaign last year, we wanted to go one step further to create a real, edible scorpion gift inspired by our southwestern roots and signature strawberry guava seltzer flavor. End quote. Honestly, depending on who your ex is, this sounds way more like a treat than some kind of cruel trick. Especially if your ex is me. I would absolutely love a Topo Chico branded edible scorpion. Way more fun than a box of chocolates. Although, I guess Topo Chico is really leaning into Forrest Gump's sage words about chocolate boxes. You really never know what you're going to get. Well, slight apologies for the extraordinary length of the show today, but I figured since we only have two episodes left, today and tomorrow, maybe that's okay. Plus, once I accidentally wrote 1,500 more words than usual about M&Ms, I knew I didn't want the second-to-last episode ever to just be about M&Ms. I still don't know how I wrote so much about M&Ms, considering there's so much I feel like I didn't include. But yes, in case you missed it at the end of yesterday's show, the Cool Stuff Ride Home will be shutting down on Friday the 10th, tomorrow. That is kind of weird to be saying that, but yes... And I will talk all about it more tomorrow on our final episode of All Time. For now, I just want to leave you with one little recommendation that I couldn't find a way to shoehorn into the M&M's segment, which is a green M&M fan account on Instagram that is completely unhinged and entirely wonderful. Link in the show notes to explore that. But that is it from me for today. This show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird, and I'll talk to you again tomorrow. 